I'm Corey Astle. And I'm Kyle Salmon. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times? And how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at at consminds. That's at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode two, we continued our discussion of Conscience of a Conservative by Barry Goldwater from 1960. Specifically, we cover chapters 7 and 8 and 10. All right, well, let's jump back in. Where we left off at chapter 10 uh, is Goldwater's ideas on taxes and spending and uh, how they tie into his ideas about private property being essential to freedom. I think he gets it started right away by saying that the right to property is essential and that the government has only the most limited claim on our property. And Mm -hmm. that man is not free if his fruits are treated as part of a common pool of public wealth. So I, I, th- I think that's not um, that's something we still definitely talk about in conservatism today, low taxes. I mean, that, that may be one of the only things that's been consistent from his time to ours. Conservatives want less, well, they campaign on the idea of less taxes. I don't know if they've gone down that much. Maybe some. Yeah, and so I, he, he says, contrary to the natural, natural right of property to deny a man the, uh, it, it's, sorry, it's contrary to the natural right of property to deny a man the fruits of his labor. And I think here he's sort of echoing John Locke. You know, Locke <clears throat> made that argument that once a person starts to apply his or her labor, it creates a property right. And specifically for, for Locke, you know, you mix your labor with the land and and then that land becomes yours. I think that's a perspective that's carried through um, in conservative thought, certainly Goldwater and I think today, the idea that, you know, if, if you are not, if you're denied sort of the, the fruits of your labor, he says it does violence um, to, to both the charter and rep- of the Republic and the laws of nature. It's like it, it's sort of an enslavement and does violence to your psyche. It, you know, uh, there's uh, the li- famous liberal philosopher, John Rawls, um, and we don't have to dive into him, but among other things, he, he made this argument that he had this idea that no human sort of earned his or her talents uh, it's something that you came by through luck and so as a result uh, you shouldn't be able to benefit from it solely instead we should treat it as a public good to be shared and you know i don't think you have to disagree with the idea that some of our talents are luck but but goldwater says no i mean you get to own your talents if it's your talent it's your benefit so if you have some intellectual ability or an ability to delay gratification or work hard or conscientious, you should be able to capitalize on that and you should be able to keep the fruits of those labors. I, yeah, I don't think he would totally disagree that there's luck involved. I just think he doesn't think it's anyone's job to even out that luck. That there's um, that some people are better at one thing or another or smarter, stronger. Um, that's not not government's job to fix that's that's nature or god's will or however you want to look at it it's it's how we're born and while he 
who would believe that we all have equal rights under law. I don't think uh, I don't think he sees any value in the idea of a society that that constantly levels us. Yeah, and he has this statement. Speaking of God, he says he says we're equal in the eyes of God, but we are equal in no other respect. What do you think of that? I think it's a great piece of rhetoric. It's it's like a lot of Goldwater's good lines. It's um it comes off a little hard, I think, for the average person. But it's it's hard to deny it. I mean, it's we're equal in dignity. I guess is sort of what he's saying. But but that doesn't mean that you or I could play in Major League Baseball, right? We don't. We're not equal in those talents, right? You know, there's just there's no way around that, and there's no government that could make us equal to uh, you know a Barry Bonds or a Roger Clemens or I mean I don't know why I'm naming all steroid guys, but that's yeah. that's what's <laughs> on my mind right now. Um, but that's 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 um what it made me think of is um. A conversation between John Adams and uh, Thomas Jefferson, and that I'd read years ago about um, where they were talking about aristocracy and the difference between the aristocracy that's that's sort of false, the one that prevailed in Britain, and to some extent in their own their own country, based on birth, wealth, you know that sort of thing. But then I think they they both agreed that the United States could give could be a place where the natural aristocracy, as they called it, could rise to the top. That's based on virtue and talent, and that's I think a thread that carries through the Goldwater, and and even to Republicans today or conservatives today, I should say, um, the idea that yeah, some of us are imbued with different gifts, and you know, so rising to the top based on that merit, based on that that uh, ability to work hard and willingness to work hard, is nothing to be ashamed of, and it's something to be valued. Yeah, a hard. A hard strain of what's important is equality of opportunity. And even if you remove God from the equation, as you said, yeah, we're born with certain talents and those are not distributed evenly. And we can recognize that. And so to the extent that there is a role for government, the role is to sort of ensure an equality of opportunity from the standpoint of basic education and freedom of property rights, freedom of speech. You don't have to have extreme talents to sort of apply your labor and, and create, as Locke would say, create a property right or create uh, value and benefit for yourself. Right. And I think the other non-economic participation in society that he stressed in the in the earlier chapters remains equal. I mean, a person, you know, wh- whether, whatever his talents has equal access to the freedom of speech and the freedom of religion and, and all of the other, like, the, ba- the basics of, of human liberty. So he, he goes from there into a discussion on taxation and how much the government should take. That naturally leads into what the government should be doing with the money, since they one can't have one without the other. And he sees um, he sees the problem as the government expanding beyond its legitimate functions, which yes, grounds in the Constitution and the, the specifically delegated powers of the Constitution, which the country by 1960 had been getting away from for at least three decades and, and more in some other respects. So it's sort of he's still. Um, reacting strongly to the new deal i think he hadn't even of course the great society hadn't even come around yet i can only imagine what he thought of that right um i think that 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 is a standard in american uh, conservatism looking back at the constitution and what did we grant as a people the right to the federal government to do and how how is it staying within those bounds and if it's not what can we do to bring it back in yeah goldwater is such a principled thinker and as you say grounds everything in constitutional powers he looks around in in his own day and says 
a tendency of some politicians is to say, how, how much money does the government need in order to, you know, to accomplish all these goals and, and to solve problems and create programs? And he says, that is not the question. The question is not how much does the government need, but rather, what are the legitimate functions of government? And, okay, let's fund those. Let's find a way to fund those functions. But it really strikes me as how, how far we've drifted from that today. I mean, to your point, he, he didn't even, at this point at least, he, he didn't uh, have the great society to, <laughs> to compare. Mm-hmm. And, you know, pushing forward to today, I think that I don't think either, either party has really shied away from spending. I mean, you've had a Republican Party who's criticized Democrats for spending and then turned around once they get power and spend themselves. And now at this point, we're not even limited to taxing. And I think, I mean, Goldwater's talking about taxing here, but these days we don't even tax to spend. We just spend and take out debt. And the spending of the 50s was in balanced budgets for the most part or close to it. Right, and that's that just seems that just seems so quaint. <laughs> Doesn't it? <laughs> I, I can imagine what you think of deficit spending, which is sort of, a, I mean, it's a tax on future generations. Uh, I can, mm-hmm. can see he'd be appalled at that because there's not even the consent of the government that you get from present day taxation. You're just sort of dipping into the future and saying, you know, somebody else will take care of that. And I mean, last year alone, the government racked up nearly $4 trillion in debt. $4 trillion. The numbers get so big, it's kind of hard to even wrap your head around it. Yeah, and so then it becomes, ah, uh, just more, uh, whatever. Billions, trillions, whatever. He kind of looked also at taxation as, in terms of legitimate forms of government, as when you have this graduated income tax, I mean, what is, I think he saw that as also somewhat illegitimate because its aim is not simply funding the government for which even a, a, a low tax person like Goldwater could probably accept some level of taxation because after all, there are things that are legitimate aims, but uh, the graduated tax he saw as uh, aimed at redistribution and that is, he seems to have thought was not legitimate at all. Um, mistakes what the business of government is is even he certainly despises the idea of redistribution and calls it calls a graduated tax confiscatory tax and just for those who are listening graduated tax means that uh, depending on your income you pay a different level of tax so obviously those those who pay the least pay a lower percentage of their tax at least as federal income tax is what we're talking about and as you move up the income scale you end up paying more and the idea is, I mean, it literally is a redistribution. The idea that people who make more money, you know, as, as, as President Obama said, um, should pay their fair share, fair share meaning more than the people at the bottom. And, and just for some reference, today, uh, the reality is the top 1% pays 40% of all personal income taxes, 40%. Then compare that to the bottom 50% of income earners. That means half the country pays only 2.8% of income taxes collected by the U.S. government. So the top 1% pays more than the bottom 90% combined. Yeah. And if you want to compare it to Goldwater's day too, um, the top rate was actually quite a bit higher in his day. It was 91%. But that the bracket for that was so high that almost no one got into it. So according to the Tax Foundation, there's a lot of good research on taxes if any of you listeners are interested, the top 1% in those days paid 13% of all taxes, whereas now it's 
yeah, like you said, close to 40%. 40%. Yeah. So yeah. The, the rates were higher then, and they were sort of eye-poppingly high. But the reality was that the tax burden was more evenly distributed in his day, although still clearly uh, you know, balanced on one end of the spectrum and not the other. Yeah, so that is really striking. And, and Goldwater, of course, makes the argument that he says government has a right to claim an equal percentage of each man's wealth and no more. And this is the flat tax concept. Uh, flat tax has been, the idea has been around obviously a long time and preceded Goldwater. Re- Republicans from, or conservatives from time to time have tried to run on it. What makes it tricky now, the entrenched system, you know, there's a, there's a series of deductions. There's, and, and, you know, if we were to create a flat tax, you'd have to set it relatively high. And that would be uh, a major burden for people in the lower income brackets and basically politically completely unpalatable. You, you almost couldn't even imagine people going from really, if, if, if you make less than $50,000 in your family, you, you're not paying federal income tax right. at all. And in fact, you're getting a check cut to you probably. You're definitely getting a check cut because of the child tax credit if you have children. Mm-hmm. So go from having a, a tax uh, return, uh, a rebate basically, to suddenly paying 20% of your income. I mean, that, that would be pretty difficult. Tw- I use 20% because a lot of flat tax supporters, that's the kind of the number that they peg. But another downside would be, you know, the, the tax code does have legitimate, I, what I would consider good incentives um, for businesses to invest and so forth. And, and having a flat tax would kind of remove all that. But but even so, if you had a, if your tax rate was low enough and our, and our corporate rate was just lowered to 21%, right. if it was low enough, then, you know, maybe that would be en- enough to spur the investment that we need. But I think the system has been in place so long that like you say, people would, people would flip out. Um, cause it's, it would be a radical departure at this point to even approach a flat tax in, in my home state, Pennsylvania, our state tax is a flat tax. Um, that's in our state constitution, but then you're talking about uh, three percent, which, you know, it's not the burden that the, the federal twenty or whatever it would be percent represents. And uh, yeah, and a state takes more of its income from property tax anyway, mm-hmm. property sales tax, tax. sales tax. Right. So it's possible, but only at the lowest levels. I think once you start reaching into those double digit numbers, you really it w- it really would be quite a big burden on the poor that I think even most conservatives wouldn't get behind. All right. So he talks, he talks spending too. And I love this line. He says, neither political party has seriously faced up to the problem of government spending and nothing could be more true. I think there is, there is a ticking debt time bomb that's going to hit at some point right now. uh, The U S holds $21.6 trillion in debt. $21 $21 trillion in debt. That's 77% of GDP. It'll hit over 100% within the next 10 years. Here, here's a few more numbers that I find striking. So our, the federal budget, that is the spending that goes out the door. In 2017, it was $4 trillion. That's about where we're at right now, $4 trillion budget. Mandatory spending is 65% of that. So for those listeners, half the people in this country believe that Spending on the military is about 90% of the budget. It's no. not. It's about 15%. Instead, 65%, the, the vast majority of federal spending goes to mandatory programs, which are Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act. 
I mean, obviously, Social Security and Medicare are the two biggest kahunas. 15, only 15% of the budget goes to the military. And then 16% uh, 16% is what goes to all other programs. That means every uh, EPA clean air program, uh, jobs program, unemployment insurance, all, all, all government programs that run through the Department of Commerce, the Department of Energy, the Department of Interior, only 16% of the budget. This is what we fight over. And just for more reference, 6% of our budget goes to interest. You know, every, every month we're paying out the door to interest. And within the next 10 years, the interest on the debt is going to triple. And now the interest rates are going up like one point interest rate increase would nearly, would nearly double our interest costs overnight. And this is what I mean by mm-hmm. debt bomb. All we need is, I mean, we've enjoyed historically insanely low interest rates for so many years that we really, those of us of our generation, Kyle, we don't, we almost don't know what it's like to have high interest rates. My, my dad talks about how he took out a loan for his house at 11% and he thought that was yeah, a I've good heard, deal. I, 11%. I've heard my dad say the same. Yeah, it's, it sounds crazy to us, but it, there's no reason that couldn't come again. I think we're, we're lucky in that other countries are worse at this than we are. And that the, the U.S. dollar and, and the, the treasury note is still seen as a safer investment than other countries because they're just even more profligate spenders. But if any if if any of the EU or China or anybody got their act together, they could easily displace us as that place to put your money, that place where you can trust that the debts are getting paid. Especially especially as we keep going on the latest you know whirlwind of debt spending. Right. I mean, we think those days could people don't people think you know eleven percent, sixteen percent. That's something in the seventies. It can't come back, and it, it there's no reason it couldn't. Yeah, a- absolutely, and. You know, in the in the coming years, it's I think it's only 10 to 15 years away before that four trillion dollar budget will be eaten up completely by the man by Social Security and Medicare. And so every other thing that every other program or every other uh, government initiative will have to be funded through debt. And to your point, like the interest rates inevitably will go up. And as that happens, we're just putting ourselves further and further behind the eight ball. I mean, the only advantage we have with the Chinese and Japanese buy a lot of our debt, and the upside to to that, I guess, right now is they're kind of over a barrel too because the Chinese they don't necessarily want to. I mean, they could stop buying treasuries tomorrow, and our government would go to lock that lockout freeze. It would seize immediately. I mean, the problem is, you know, they hold the debt and they don't want the value of of those investments to drop precipitously as it would. So they they have an interest in in keeping this disgusting machine churning as well. It's it's uh, it's that weird sort of switch that happens when you owe so much money that you're kind of in charge. Yeah. You know? Like if if the if if you or I would default on our mortgage, the bank would just all right, we'll take the house, you know, they'll but if somebody who owe a billion dollar mortgage on a series of office buildings were to default, whoa, whoa, let's let's renegotiate. Let's let's keep it going. Yeah, well, and this this is not just hypothetical. It happened during the financial crisis, right? They're too big to fail. Why were they too big to fail? Because they owed too much to too many, and the the, the ripple effect would have destroyed our economy. And China's going through that too, with a lot of fake, bad bad debt, fake debt that's that their government is forcing banks to keep on the books. Which is, I mean, that's that's part of the other reason I think that we remain as a place to invest is because nobody believes in Chinese debt. 
like all their economic figures it's it's fake you know who knows we're at least we at least retain that that transparency he says one thing that you don't hear much anymore is that spending cuts have to come before tax cuts for for somebody who doesn't like taxes as much as goldwater doesn't like taxes he still has his eye on the bottom line and about our fiscal sovereignty and and i mean that 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 makes a lot of sense oh yeah i completely agree and i remember when i uh, first moved to washington um in the early 2000s and you know bush was in charge and and the Republican Congress, the theory that I kept hearing was, uh, all right, well, we can't, we can't cut spending first. It's not working. So what we, we need to pursue this theory of starve the beast. That means let's just cut taxes first and it'll force everyone to the table to cut spending. And of course that has been found completely not credible. Yeah, that didn't work at all. <laughs> Everybody just got real comfortable with deficit spending again. And so he's, I mean, and so he also says we need to cur- uh, curtail spending um, by eliminating programs uh, on which excess spending is consumed. Now, what struck me about this is I think he's still thinking in terms, well, I know he's still thinking in terms of discretionary spending and not mandatory spending. Because again, the, the Great Society and the, uh, the creation of Medicare and Medicaid and the huge expansion of Social Security hadn't happened just yet. So he's thinking in terms of uh, well, let's let's cut government spending as far as you know foreign aid or or government job programs, and and fast forward to our day, I think that's where the focus of the Tea Party had had been, you know, in the in the past few years. That's to cut appropriations. That means cutting discretionary spending. That's that's just focused on the sixteen percent right. of government programs and doesn't even touch at all the the big problems, which is Social Security and Medicare. Yeah, and that's um. They called Social Security the third rail since since we were kids, and it's uh, everyone's afraid to touch it. Yeah, and to, to his point, like neither party has seriously faced up to this problem, and there's reasons for that. But um, you know, even Republicans really will not stand. They'll say that we need to reform entitlements and we need to cut cut the spending, but when it comes to naming names and saying this part of Medicare is what we need to cut, or this this is what this is how we need to raise the the retirement age for Social Security, these types of things, naming names and being specific, no, we're not going to do that because it absolutely uh, exposes us to serious criticism and I'd yeah, just rather not. somebody might not like us, right? I, I, I don't think either party's going to do it until they have to. Um, is that, I mean, that's, that's sort of what happened in Canada in the 90s is that they were spending even worse than we were and they finally got to a point where the dollar was getting weaker and they had to get their house in order and it happened to be the liberal party in power that did it which uh, wow and it, it made them once the cuts once it finally they got through the ugliness of it it made them look like a more respectable party of governance for a while and that'll eventually happen here uh and it's going to be i think it's more like the roulette wheel and whoever it lands on whoever's in power when real debt crises start to happen will finally have to cut some things to the bone not just trimming away the fat but I, I don't know yeah, when that's going to happen. I'm afraid you're probably right. And, and what's required for it to happen? Mm-hmm. I mean, how much pain? But speaking of welfare, Goldwater devotes Chapter 8 to what he calls welfareism, the sort of transition among social socialist or socialistic type theory from the old-style Marxist where the aim was to confiscate everything, run all the industries, you know, as the government 
the means of production controlled by the people, the old, the old communist manifesto. He said they, that, mm-hmm. um, people don't like it. It turns out, uh, but they do like he calls welfareism and it's, you know, where instead the government takes over sort of, uh, redistributing wealth, you know, they'll, they'll let the capitalist industries go on and they'll, you know, they'll hamstring them with different regulations and taxes, but they'll sort of, you know, milk that cow, spread mm-hmm. the milk around to whatever political interest they, they feel will keep them in office. And it's a sort of a more seductive socialism 2.0. Yeah. It's the camel's nose in the tent, right? Okay. We're, we, we won't let you in right away, but slowly, but surely we'll, we'll work in that direction. And, you know, he wasn't wrong. So he says this in 1960. Right. You're right. And there, there wasn't nearly as much of it then, but yeah, he saw it coming. And I think in, in our day, we don't even have to call it socialism, but people of our generation, I think, you know, millennials in particular, there's this, there's just this expectation that someone else will take care of things. You know, you know, I want to go to school, so mm-hmm. somebody needs to pay for it, or, you know, I want to have a house, or I want to have, a, I want to have a job that, that I want that fulfills me and that you know covers all the my phone and 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 if something goes wrong, then somebody else needs to fix it. Somebody else has to fix it. Maybe this is an old man like get the hell off my lawn, but I, I do feel like what's changed from at least my parents who were absolutely pull yourself up by the bootstraps and would never expect anyone else to do anything for them to today. I feel like there's much more general sense that a much more general sense that somebody else should take care of or fix or, you know, make right or, um, service me. And, you know, I, I grew up in a such, such and such size house and neighborhood. And so, damn it, I better have that same thing when I, as soon as I graduate from college or. Right. Yeah. It's sort of the, I guess it's a part of progressivism. They feel like they should, we should never regress. You know, you should never have less than your parents have, Mm -hmm. but are you willing to work as hard as they worked? Well, (laughs) maybe not. Yeah. And delay gratification. I mean, the expectation that this, these arguments do frustrate me because, you know, surveys say your children are going to do better than you. And or are they doing better than you? Or even more specifically, are you doing better than your parents? And what's the reference point there? Because when my parents were my age, they were still hustling yes. and scrapping and clawing their way. It's not, you know, are you immediately doing as well as your, your parents when your dad had retired after 35 years at the company? It's a question of after 35 years in your own career, are you, have you, have you improved upon? Right. And maybe it's because we don't remember those early days because we weren't born or we were just babies and you know you don't even when you're a little kid you don't really know who's rich and who's poor you know but uh yeah that's i mean i guess a generation that's still on their parents netflix password right (laughs) and i'm guilty (laughs) of that too of course they expect somebody else to pay for their college and and (laughs) it's uh yeah and, and that's why i think um like goldwater talked about welfareism as being more dangerous probably because it's more insidious i guess it it's easier i think for it to slip under the radar so, oh a little help uh-huh. from here a little leveling from here it's not the same as uh the government owns all the coal mines now which was a you know that in england was a big change or you know the uh-huh. government owns a telephone system now and that people notice that and then when it doesn't work then they get mad at the government with welfareism, you're still mad at the old corporations when they don't work, but you're just asking for more money from the government. 
So it's it's not like there's a failure of the government. Mm-hmm. It's still, it's th- they can still put the blame on somebody else. It's like, well, look, we're giving you free money. Your problems are still somebody yeah. else's fault. Yeah. Whereas like the Soviet-style system, uh, there, there's nobody left to blame. And so in that point, we have to shut down all right. racism or dissidents. Yeah. I think we'll see that if, there, if we ever get single-payer health care, is that all of a sudden everybody's complaint about insurance companies and doctors is going to be directed at the government. That's not going to be good for the government. Well, that's right. I mean, that's an excellent point. I hadn't really thought of. So in Congress, yeah, be prepared to spend your days um, hearing complaints along the lines right. of the yeah. I, I mean, no. <laughs> the, the British people love the NHS, but they also complain about it constantly. I mean, they, they, they a lot of yeah. them like it, but then they talk about, well, when, when I last had an appointment, oh, it took me three months to get in, and you know, the doctor took forever to get to me, and yeah, now we complain about that. We all have waited in the doctor's offices, but it's not the government's fault. It's the hospital or the insurance company. Yeah, I mm-hmm. mean, I guess the more mm-hmm. power they take, they're going to eventually have to take some of the blame. Great point. Great point. And so, so Goldwater says, you know, this line of thinking has a strong emotional appeal to many voters, which obviously is I think more so today, even. Yeah. And uh, I mean, we have a, a Bernie Sanders and the the new uh, representative from New York, Casio Cortez, basically saying everything. We're going to give every everything for free. Uh, any, uh, we're going to fulfill your wildest dreams, whatever you want. You know, it's it's a just a pot. Stick your hand in and pull it out. Yeah, and. And he says, uh, I mean, Goldwater recognizes this and says that unless conservatives can demonstrate, specifically he says, unless conservatives can demonstrate and communicate the difference between being concerned with these problems and believing that the federal government is the proper agent for the solution, conservatism is done for. When people have problems, and especially today, when the expectation is somebody else, the government, somebody else has got to take care of this, if if conservatives can't, can't demonstrate or at least communicate that, hey, look, I think that's a problem. I just think that the federal government is not the problem solver or going to give you the best solution. I mean, that's a it's, tough it, it's argument. It's tough to, to thread make. that needle, and especially when the other side is casting the opposite view of you. Anytime you want to cut something or limit something, it's, mm. he doesn't care. Well, no, you might care. He just thinks he's not the one to fix it. And that, I think we have a hard time with that. Sometimes we come off as hard-hearted. I think a perfect example of that was the ACA repeal. Um, in 2017, Republicans, uh, at least the House, passed a repeal of, of Obamacare. Then it was the dog that caught the car, and now what are we going to do about it? Because actually, n- now we're talking about taking a benefit away that, that had been conferred and people had gotten used to over you know, eight or ten years. So you're, you're suddenly in a position of, okay, well, we still need to provide all these benefits because that's what that's what people want. There's you know a strong connection to it now, a strong emotional appeal, as, as Goldwater would say. But we need to we need to somehow show that there's a difference. We we want these problems to be solved, but we just don't want the government to do. It's it's too mm-hmm. late by then. I mean, and it was right. Just then you got the other meltdown. side. With, you know, it's always well. Do you hate children with cancer? Well, geez, I mean, that's a no one wants to be on the other side of that. <laughs> Oh, no, no, kids. of course not. Well, why don't you just give yeah. them all the money then? You know, and that's uh, yeah. Someone think of the children is a is a tough one to get around. I mean, when when not every voter is as engaged as I think the people who will listen to this podcast are probably pretty politically engaged, but most people aren't. And you know, they see an ad that says, "Well, this guy wants to take away money from sick kids." Oh, geez, that guy, he's no good. <laughs> you know, that's. Yeah, yeah. No, and it's it's tough it to sell. tough to get over that wall of sound that 
you get around election time and say, no, that's, that's not what, that's not what's going on here. So yeah, the emotional appeal, I mean, well, people have emotions. It's, I think if, if anything is, uh, missing in Goldwater's vision, it's, uh, emotionalism. Yeah. I mean, he, he has that sort of libertarian, um, you know, straight yeah. logic, please. But there are, I mean, but conservatives are emotional too. And that's, um, that's something that you have to take into account because it's part of who we are as humans. I don't know what the answer to that is in terms of this problem, but it's, uh, it's, so, it's something that, uh, yeah. I think he, he's unemotional about it, but that doesn't mean anybody else is. Well, so then it does raise the question. He says, this, these are not, this is not the role of federal government. So whose role is it? And he says, let welfare be a private concern promoted by individuals, families, churches, religious organizations, and charities. That does, you know, speak to me. I think though that I, I do think that there's room for criticism here though, because is it really realistic to rely on private charities? I mean, in, especially in this day and age when churches are shrinking, social capital is decreasing, and you know those community institutions like churches or, or and, and charities are just sort of they're waning. And we're at a point now where even in 1960, you still had churches who right. would run hospitals. You know, and in the in the the early part of the century. You, the hospital was owned by, you know, and run by Methodists or, or Catholic nuns. You know, you had women banding together to create birthing houses. And um, so, so many of these social services were provided by community organizations. But, you know, as a result of the continual march towards let's have the government fill these roles, you know, that it kind of pushes out private concerns and pu pushes out these the social capital institutions and now we're at a point where people again don't expect that they're going to get help from their church they fully expect that they're going to get help from from the government so i think we're in a quandary and how do we is it is that even is it even possible to i think i think you're changing you make that a great point is that those those organizations have atrophied you know because of the expansion of government and now yeah what's left to take government's place maybe president bush was aiming at rebuilding them with his faith-based initiatives but Again, that's still government, mm, yeah. I mean, but I mean, it might have been able to give it a good start. And whether churches are, are down because they've been squeezed out or just because of the general typical secular cycles between great awakenings and retreats from that, you know, I'm not sure we can totally put it on government that churches have declined. Yeah, I don't know what's left, um, but there certainly used to be. I mean, there were, even among groups where there wasn't a lot of money, I and mean, there were immigrant aid societies or those who got here would, and did well enough could would help people like them who were just coming over. I mean, there were there were a lot of those sort of things. Oh, yes. Um, I remember the savings bank in my neighborhood was, in its original incarnation, a Ukrainian self-help society sort of thing, you know, where it was, it, it started out uh, as a savings bank for immigrants. Yeah, and then it just became a regular. Interesting. Because you know, there weren't as many immigrants anymore, at least from that group. I think there were a lot of those things that started out as little community organizations like mutual health, mutual life insurance companies. And you could certainly could do it again, but it's, mm -hmm. I wonder if that part of people's brain is also kind of disappeared. I don't expect it. It, like you said, they think, well, we're in trouble. Got to go to the government. Yeah. It'd almost be reinventing and because it, it's, it's such a novelty now. I think and, David Cameron was a aiming at this when he talked about big society in Britain. 
to, as replacing big government. I don't know if they ever did anything about it, but that was the platform for a while, and it, it intrigued me. Uh, I don't, but like I guess I don't think it went anywhere. Because even more than we, they have that sort mm. of big government pushed everything else out. All right, well, should we switch gears now to sure. move to Chapter 10, Goldwater's assessment of the Soviet menace? <laughs> it's, a, Soviet it's a great title. <laughs> <laughs> and as you said, this uh, this chapter was a doozy. My first impression was, oh, this is pretty dated. But yeah, I, I thought the same. I thought, all right, how much are we going to get out of a chapter about uh, an evil empire that no longer exists? But I think um, the one thing he that really resounded to me is he talked about the idea of detente and peace with the Soviets was misguided because the Soviets did not themselves want peace. They wanted conquest. Um, they wanted to win. And the uh, American policymakers mm-hmm. who were aiming at a sort of halfway measure were deluding themselves. I think that, that carries through to the, the threat of uh, radical mm-hmm. Islamic terrorism today. People who want to make peace with Iran, reach an understanding with ISIS or Al-Qaeda, it's, th- those those folks don't want to coexist with us. You know, like the like the bumper sticker says, they, they, they want to destroy us. Their vision of a world is one that's ruled yeah. by Sharia, you know, all over the globe. And I, I think when we forget that, when we... And maybe it's it's natural for mm-hmm. policymakers to look on the other side of the table and say, "Well, at heart, we're really all the same, aren't we?" And I think Obama was very guilty of this, and thinking, "Well, if we could just sit down and reason together, yeah, we could we could come to an understanding." I don't know if you, I don't think you can do that with Ahmadinejad. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's he's not like mm-hmm. us at heart. He's a he's a radical, and he is not a pluralist or a you know multipolar uh-huh. <laughs> Democrat. You know, he's a he, he and, and others like him, I think, are they're fighting a battle for world dominance. And they're playing a long game that I th- I think a lot of American policymakers are closing their eyes to. Yeah, I think this, this goes to the idea that one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. And, you know, during the Cold War, we certainly had folks who were like, well, there's a moral equivalency between us and the Soviets. The only difference is we like our tribe and they like their tribe. Goldwater is very specific about saying, no, there is not a moral equivalence, and they are playing a long game. But I, I have a question for you. I think, so I think that, you know, traditionally, I think maybe more folks on the left would, would be, as you said, Obama and others, more apt to want to sit down at the table and have conversations. But now I, I feel like the script has been flipped a little bit because you have Trump and his relationship with Rocket Man, Kim Jong-un, and, and uh, Putin – and it's almost it, it is a strange shift yeah i feel um, like in many ways we've gone I through think the he's looking probably glass. our most isolationist president maybe in our lifetime i mean i don't know who else would maybe carter and true when he was running against clinton she was pretty much more of an engaged internationalist i mean that was one of her one of the weird parts of the election i said well oh, she's a hot foreign policy is a lot more like the bush doctrine yeah as i said during the campaign i i thought her and marco rubio their foreign policy was basically indistinguishable so yeah what does that mean for conservatism i mean because conservatism definitely had its isolationist phases and before the second world war that was all of the international stuff was on the democrat side mm-hmm. all of the people who wanted to be in the league of nations and all that wilsonian stuff i don't know if there is a trumpism or a trump doctrine it might be just whatever he's doing that day mm-hmm. so so i think goldwater what really struck me too in, ter- in terms of parallels with um, global war on terrorism he he wants an offensive posture he wants a forward pushing. He wants to ch- challenge the Soviets at every turn. 
he wants he wants an offensive he, he wants to challenge the communist leaders in every country he, he wants to if there's a communist advance he wants to move nuclear weapons to the border in other words very aggressive yeah. i think we see <clears throat> clear parallels with uh, the bush doctrine too of spreading democracy around the world and challenging dictators challenging terrorists uh, on every shore uh, putting american troops there it's interesting to me how we've had i guess a, a fluctuation in the way that conservatives or republicans would view as the the right foreign policy from from a bob taft isolationism to a mm-hmm. very strong anti-communism to uh, let's not be during the clinton years we shouldn't be the world's policemen to the bush years where yes let's let's advance freedom and democracy around the world to today with trump whereas like america first we don't care what's going on in fact we'll even make d- deals with dictators in order to keep them out of sight out of mind yeah it's a strange realism from trump um a kissinger element to it i think you know and sort of nixon going to china but even with nixon it didn't seem like he liked it it's just he knew it had to be done mm-hmm. trump i think he kind of enjoys it maybe that that policy of forceful engagement that goldwater recommends it, i think it makes sense in the global war on terror i think that's a fight we can win i'm not sure it made sense in the cold war and it's just that i think the nuclear element changes the equation in a way that he didn't fully take into account mm-hmm. if we engage with al-qaeda and challenge them at every front. Well, I mean, they're the worst. What's the worst that could happen? I mean, you could have a long-running war like Afghanistan that sort of drains our national morale in some ways, but it's a war we can win. Whereas if you push the Soviets too hard, you got a thousand nukes, and we have a thousand nukes. That's a tripwire that nobody really wants to push. Yes, for sure. Mutually assured destruction really changes balance of power politics, and I think it means that as bad as they are, and as much as they should be challenged at the margins, if you threaten their core interests or they threaten our core interests, horrible things could happen. Mm-hmm. And that, that, I know that's a line that, that Johnson pushed against Coldwater when he ran for president in 64, is that this guy's a madman. He's going to get us into a nuclear war. Yeah. And I don't think he was a madman, but I think his policy was more likely to have that result than detente, whatever the problems with detente are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds right to me. I, I, I think you're right. The stakes are so much higher when you're talking about nuclear weapons. And Reagan obviously recognized this when he went in with Gorbachev on the INF Treaty, Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty. But again, I guess uh, the the ghost of Goldwater. Goldwater said the Soviets they don't keep their treaties. There's no reason we should enter into treaties with them because they're deceptive and liars. And they'll renege, right. which they basically they, they, they clearly have done on the INF Treaty, which is why now Trump wants to withdraw from the INF Treaty. But well, true, and I mean they reneged on the uh, the Budapest Agreement that was supposed to guarantee yeah. the Ukraine's borders. Right, right. Although we kind of reneged on it too by not holding anyone to account. Yeah. So I mean, we we sort of both betrayed the spirit of that convention. Mm-hmm. I think I mean there's some to what he says about them not keeping the treaties i think that's also something you could carry forward today iran's not going to keep to the iran deal they never were yeah i mean it was they were going to keep and kim jong-un is going to keep building nukes no matter what he says yeah yeah. i think because he knows that if he doesn't have those nukes all he is is the dictator of a desperately poor country right with backward technology right and and no one's going to listen to him right yeah his only rational move is to continue on the course of nuclear development 
Yeah, and it's it's unfortunate that he's made his that he and his father and his grandfather have pushed their country in that direction. But at this point, I don't know what his choices are. Every president wants to solve North Korea, but I don't know what the solution is because that's a that's a tough one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They've they've got one ace in the hole, and it's those nukes. So I I don't trust you know I I think Goldwater would say we can't trust them to abide by any disarmament deal, and I think he's right. I don't know what the alternative. But I mean, can you? Again, you have the nuclear question. I mean, how far can you push somebody? How far can you engage before that unspeakable level of destruction comes about? Tough questions. Yes. All right. Well, we we have, we're pretty far along now. Maybe we should have some closing thoughts on on Goldwater's legacy. I'd read again his most famous line: "I would remind you that extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice, and let me remind you also that moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue." And, of course, he aimed that at the Northeast Republicans, the George Romneys and the Nelson Rockefellers. Uh, He wanted to run this campaign in 1964 against LBJ. He wanted to run this campaign of pure principles. It really excited the the activists, the the National Review and Bill Buckley and crew, but he lost in a landslide. Yeah. You can't run a campaign of principles against Linda Johnson. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. And uh, he obviously planted the seeds uh, because I found this statistic. Uh, a USA Today poll in 1994 showed that 64% of Americans agreed with the Gingrich uh, Republican contract with America, which was basically a platform of Goldwater's campaign in 1964, a smaller government, lower taxes, less spending, anti-crime measures. Uh, those are all Goldwater. And obviously Reagan's speech during the 1964 campaign, a time for choosing one of the all-time greats sort of set the stage for his popularity. And it's just really interesting how history works where you have a Goldwater who was completely crushed in 1964, but then in, uh, you know, 1980, Reagan runs on the same platform, not as harsh, you know, not, not as unforgiving in terms of uh, his tone. Reagan, obviously the great communicator had much more ability to share these ideas and, and pitch them to the American people in a way that uh, really resonated. He was the, the forerunner and uh, pretty amazing. Yeah, and maybe it's it's sort of like what you're talking about with spending. is um, Maybe people will come around to the ideas. It just has to take a while, and things have to get bad enough. And maybe people didn't see government as overreaching in 1960 or 64, but by 1980 or 1994, they had seen it for another 20, 30 years and said, yeah, it's enough. It's yeah. Maybe there's something to that old old guy's ideas. Yeah. So I mean, maybe we'll see that with with deficit spending. It just has to get bad enough, and then people will finally say, "All right, now this is affecting me." I, I think he leaves something to to get nostalgic about too, because because the Goldwater campaign and then Reagan, a time for choosing speech. That was a time of really fresh, hard hitting ideas. And uh, you know, I read that history. I think to myself, oh. Man, how how much that would have energized me, yeah. Um, and now I feel like we're we're in the the hangover period, and we're still. I guess the rise of Trump has maybe discredited this, but but in the the most recent campaigns, you know, two thousand four, two thousand eight, two thousand twelve, two thousand sixteen. Outside of Trump, people are still running on. I'm I'm the next Reagan. I'm I'm going to carry on Reagan's legacy, and it just feels stayed. And e- even though the ideas still the right ones i think but in terms no it's you sorry you're completely right i I felt the same way in 2016 it was 
yeah, Reagan. Yes, we understand. But it's we've been hearing it for a long time, and there's they've got to have an idea on top of that, trying to out Reagan each other. Yeah, rather than moving us forward with 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 new ideas and look, it's tough. But um, yeah, it just felt like a more of a rehash and more of a my scar is bigger than yours and mm-hmm. and uh, rather than a sort of Paul Ryan party of ideas, you know, moving us ahead in the future. Yeah, and I, th- I guess it will come around again. I, mean, I, I felt energized by the contract with America in 94. I felt like here's a clearly articulated vision of government. It's not based on a personality because I don't think Gingrich was a particularly charismatic figure. It was a platform. It was things people could get behind, understand. I mean, it, it, that was a, a, an idea, a campaign of ideas. And it, it could come around again. Maybe not, maybe not this year. Yeah, yeah. And we'll see. We'll see if we're moving in a completely different direction now anyway. All right, so that was Goldwater. Next time, we're going to cover a book called Ideas Have Consequences, written by philosopher Richard Weaver, originally published in 1948. So we'll catch you then. Thanks for listening.